don't be scared or apprehensive to have that conversation. It's your career you're talking about, and you have to enjoy what you're doing. And if you're not enjoying what you're doing, you can only fake it for so long before it starts impacting those around you. You're listening to Toolbox of the Trades, brought to you by Service Titan, a podcast for top service professionals where we interview leaders for their best tips and tricks of the trades. Learn how industry trailblazers stay ahead of the competition and how you too can be at the forefront of an industry. Let's jump in. Hello, contractors, and welcome to the Toolbox for the Trades. Today's guest is the wonderful Eric Knack, Executive Vice President and GM for Isaac Heating and Air Conditioning. As a former Marine himself, Eric is passionate about getting more veterans in the trades and has gone as far as Congress to make it happen. His ideas on building culture, developing technicians, and growing a multi-million dollar business are essential to owners at any stage of their business development. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Thanks for listening. Eric, welcome to the Toolbox for the Trades podcast. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Super happy to have you here. Um, Before we kick off this conversation, can you please just let the folks know who you are? Yes. Uh, yeah, Jackie, I'm uh, Eric Knack. I'm executive vice president and general manager with Isaac Heating and Air Conditioning out of Rochester, New York. And I'm also the immediate past chairman of the Air Conditioning Contractors of America, ACCA. ACCA, otherwise known. Thank yes. you so much for joining me. I'm so excited to have you today. Uh, we'll kick off this conversation the way we kick off most of my podcast conversations, which is how did you get into the trades? Well, when I was, I was in the Marine Corps, so, and today, today actually happens to be the Marine Corps' 245th birthday. So, a shout out and semper fi to any Marines that are listening. Uh, thank you for your service. I really appreciate oh, it. Thank you. And uh, when I got out of the Marine Corps, I really didn't know what I was going to do. Uh, so, my father, who actually retired from Isaac Heating back in 2010, he got me an interview uh, with Jim Isaac back in 1989, uh, 31 plus years ago. And, um, that And as I always tell people, he got me the interview, not the job. So he got me an interview with Jim Isaac. And basically, I applied for the position. Jim told me, he said, Eric, we'll let you know as soon as something opens up. Well, I needed to work. So I then had an interview with a plumber. And this plumber, I talked to them and they offered me a position. So I called my father at the office and said, hey, dad, Kelly Plumbing offered me a position. What should I do? He says, don't do anything. I'll call you back. So a little while later, I, when I got home, he called me and he said, Jim Isaac says you start Monday. So that was kind of how my career with Isaac Heating got started. And you've been with them, you just said for 31 plus years, that is quite the tenure, I have to say. Um, and I would really like to go into that tenure and how you yeah. progressed at Isaac. But before that, you know, I've heard a lot about the trades really embracing veterans. And I would love to hear your thoughts on that, um, how you think more trade companies can embrace veterans and how your military background really helped you in your HVAC career. Sure, no, the the trades actually fit very well with veterans and for for a few reasons. Uh, One of them being is that veterans, they go, or not veterans, when you're in the military, you go through training, you go through schools and they help to determine what is kind of your skill set, And those, that that seem to lean towards um, the skilled trades, HVAC, it's kind of, they're doing a lot of times work similar to what they were doing in the military. So they've already been tested for it. They have an aptitude for it and they've done 
some type of work related to it to some extent while they're in the military. So it just seems like a natural transition to pick up the trades when they get out. And then there's also the, you know, the understanding about, you know, let's say HVAC. You know, if you're getting into being a service technician, you can be on call hours, so you have odd hours. You can be working outside in the elements. Um, you can run into some fairly difficult situations. Granted, not the same as the military uh, when they're doing the work that they've got to do, but they're kind of used to those things. Difficult hours, things always changing, being ready to pivot at a, at a moment's notice. So it does seem to fit, you know, seems to fit very well. And at Isaac, right now we have, uh, I believe we have about 40, 40 or 41 veterans uh, that work here at Isaac, uh, myself included. And we we work actually work very closely with the Veterans Outreach Center here in Rochester. Um, I'm actually on a couple of their advisory boards. So we try to work very closely with them to bring veterans into the trades and to one, give them an opportunity. And it's a way of thanking them for their service to the country. But it's uh, it's been a very good avenue for us uh, to bring people in. What kind of, so you just answered that question. You guys work with your veteran outreach board in your community. What are some things that owners and service managers should be aware of as they bring on uh, veterans who have recently finished their service? Is there anything they should be aware of as they're working with veterans? Well, it's, you know, it is, depending how long they've been out there, there is a transition period. So like when I got out of the, when I got out of the Marine Corps, I was used to it when somebody said, do something, you did it. And there was no questions asked, right? So there's getting used to that when you have veterans coming on board is how you communicate with them and how you give them uh, directives. I don't want to say orders, right? (laughs) Although that might be more fitting, but just the the way that you communicate and how they they are used to communicating with superiors as well as subordinates. Because someone who's in the military, they are they are familiar with an environment where you do not question your superiors, right? If you're asked or told to do something, you just do it. Well, as we know, in the civilian world, our newest technician may have some wonderful ideas and we want them to feel like they're in an environment where they can speak up and share what they're thinking. And I'm happy to do that and listen. And many times they have much better ideas than I ever could have come up with. So that's, you know, just on the communication side, it is different. And if you move into a leadership role, uh, some type of management or supervisory position, kind of the same thing I went through. When I first became a manager, I was used to the military environment. So if I asked somebody to do something, I just expected it would get done, no questions asked. And the first couple of times it didn't happen, it it threw me back. I wasn't ready for it. But Ray Isaac, who's our uh, president CEO, he worked, you know, he worked with me and he walked me through it and we talked about it and he helped to coach me and mentor me on, oh, Eric, this is the way you need to approach it with people. And I've learned over the years, that was back in 1996 when I first became a manager. So finally, after 24 years, I'm starting to understand it. So I still got work to do, but we're getting there. Amazing. Great growth mindset, by the way. (laughs) Um, No, I think that's really important for folks to know as they hire veterans and just to be aware of the kind of environment they're coming from and create that environment where just so you know, it's okay for you to bring new ideas to the table for you to question how things are done, because that's how we become a better organization overall. Absolutely. And I guess one piece of that too might be, it might help with you to have a little more compassion too, and empathy, because you don't know that veteran, they may have been, you know, they were on active duty and they may have been stateside the whole time and, you know, didn't really experience anything significant. Whereas someone who had served overseas, 
you know, during in a war zone or something like that, they're bringing back some different things that we will never understand. And that may impact them at certain points during their career. So being able to, you know, have that sympathy, that empathy, listen to them and have that flexibility to help them through the process, um, I think is also something to keep in mind. A hundred percent, hundred percent on that. Um, so talk to me about your ascent to current executive vice president at Isaac. Uh, so you called your dad, you said this plumbing company offered me a job and your dad was like, hold on. Uh, so how did you get into the door at Isaac and talk to me about your gradual progression to through, I believe you started as an installation mechanic to going to manager, to going to VP of operations? Yeah, no, absolutely. So yeah, I started in uh, on June 5th, 1989. I remember the day and I started in our new homes division. So that was installing ductwork, furnaces, air conditioners, and new homes. I did that for about six months and I kind of got bored with it. So I went to, I think it was Ray Isaac at the time. I can't really remember. I think it was Ray. And I said, I'd like to do something different. How about commercial installations, which is actually a group that my father worked in and was a supervisor. So I went to commercial installations, did that for a couple of years. And after about two, two and a half years, the Isaacs approached me and asked me if I would become warehouse manager. So now I transitioned from installations to warehouse manager. I was warehouse manager for about a year. Um, and after a year, got the warehouse all organized, everything in order. Then I requested a transfer to the service department. And the reason I wanted to go to the service department is I knew that's where I would learn a lot. I knew I would have an opportunity for overtime and just additional growth opportunities that I wouldn't necessarily get in the warehouse. So I became a service technician. Um, I was a technician for about four years. And in uh, 1995, my daughter, Kendall, was born. And that was my first child. So Kendall was born in, that fall, in July of 95. So that rest of that summer, that winter, I worked a lot. I didn't see her a lot. So when 1996 came around, I was actually contemplating my career because I wasn't getting enough time with my daughter. And I wasn't thinking um, broad enough about what other opportunities were within the company. I was thinking, oh, I need to do something else. Well, at the same time, the Isaacs had a consultant working with them on how they could grow the business and you know, basically start, start building Isaac Heating into something bigger. And one of the things the consultant identified was that they needed an assistant service manager. And they actually approached me on becoming the assistant service manager. So in 1996, I became an assistant service manager. And that got me out of the on-call rotation and gave me more flexibility in my schedule. I started seeing my daughter more often. And I, from that point on, I was good. So I was a assistant service manager. Then I was co-service manager. They're different, but they're not different. Two, there was a couple of us. And then I became um, service manager for residential. Ray Isaac and I were at a conference. I can't remember where we were, but it was one of the conferences. And our commercial service manager quit. Um, while we're on the phone, he, he called Ray and he resigned. I mean, we're a thousand miles away. And Ray's like, oh, this is cool. Um, <laughs> so we're talking about it. And Ray says, I don't know what we're going to do. And I said, well, if you want, I'll take it over too. He said, really? I said, yeah, I can do both. So I then became commercial service manager. Then eventually in 2003, I was promoted to vice president of service. And I was the first non-Isaac to be a, a non-Isaac family member to be a vice president. So that was kind of exciting. 
So I was promoted to uh, a vice president of service. 2010, I was promoted to vice president of operations. 2015, I was promoted to vice president general manager. And this past January, I was promoted to executive vice president and general manager. And the reason I went to executive vice president is we had five managers who we moved up into vice president roles. So Ray just kind of elevated my role a little bit to executive vice president. But we, I'm basically part of a uh, seven member le executive leadership team. We're all equals. We all share together, but I just have a different title. And that's kind of where I am today. I love that. That's a fantastic story. And before I get into some amazing points you made there, could you just tell the folks listening a little bit about the kind of work Isaac does? You mentioned already you do residential and commercial. How many employees do you have? You know, what, how many locations do you have, et cetera? Okay, sure. No, yeah. So we are, we are residential, commercial, and industrial. Uh, we do everything from heating, air conditioning, um, electrical, plumbing. We do home performance. So we do a lot with um, insulation and making homes energy efficient. Matter of fact, we've been awarded uh, by New York State as the contractor that has saved New Yorkers the most energy due, the amount, due to the amount of projects that we do. So we've got, wow. a pretty, yeah, we've got a pretty good sized crew that's doing that work. So that's kind of exciting. And then we get into everything else like the gas fireplaces and generators and all those. We have six locations uh, throughout Western and Central New York, about 400 employees uh, as part of the team. We have a fleet of about almost 270 vehicles now, uh, of which we drove about 4.2 million miles last year. Uh, nice fuel bill that we get, by the way. And as part of that, um, this past uh, spring, we opened up ITEP, which is Isaac Technical and Education Center. It's about a half mile up the road, and it's a 30,000 square foot standalone training and education facility that has about 10,000 square foot of classroom and 20,000 square foot of lab space, including a quarter scale of a complete home built inside. So we can train people to everything that we do. We can train, educate, develop, and that's what allows us to bring people into the trades. Oh my gosh, I'm so happy I asked that question. I am fascinated with the whole training concept and I will 100% go back to that. Also, sure. I love home performance. I love the idea of home performance. Oh, I've yeah. never heard it referenced in that category before. You know, a lot of the times I speak with HVAC contractors and they're like, oh yeah, IEQ, um, smart homes, but I love the concept of home performance. And I'm not sure if you're the, you're the only one who coined that term, but I can see that as marketed in a really intelligent way, especially in New York, which I know gets so, so, so much snow. Right, yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, home performance, uh, that, that terminology has been used uh, by others. Uh, so it's not a coined phrase by us, but it's it's much more... I think it covers much better what we're actually doing. It's not just about insulation or more efficient equipment. It's about the home performance. And it's, it's really important to understand it that way. And I imagine that as it comes to home performance, that goes into all three of the trades you operate in. Is that correct? Uh, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, because it, it could be on electrical conservation. It could be on water conservation. It could be your heating, air conditioning, insulation, windows. I mean, there's a lot of different ways that we can approach it with a homeowner. And when you talk about a home performance, is there, uh, do, are all of your techs certified or trained in doing like a home performance review or something like that? No, we have a group of auditors and they're trained uh, through BPI, 
And uh, they work, we do programs through NYSERDA, which is a New York State Energy with the Development Association. Um, and, uh, but we have, I believe we have about 20 auditors. So they will go out to somebody's home and they will actually do a, a whole bunch of measurements, temperature, air movement, leakage. Um, we'll use the infrared cameras. And what we do is we basically, after, after they've done the visit, is they will give the homeowner a kind of a menu. These are all the things that you can do to improve the performance in your home. This is what it will cost you to do it. This is what the savings will be. And this is your payback period. And a homeowner more or less can go through and decide, okay, I'll do uh, one, three, five, and seven this year. And I'll wait till next year to do the others. And I can do these three myself. So it just really gives homeowners an opportunity to save a lot of energy. That's a fantastic program. So going back to uh, your particular experience within Isaac, two things really came out to me. And one was, you know, you mentioned when you had your daughter, Kendall, that you were on call, you weren't seeing her as much. And your immediate thought was, well, I guess I need to find something else. But instead, you actually talked about your needs, talked about what you were looking for and explored opportunities within the company. What would you say to say technicians, service managers, GMs right now who are experiencing similar things, uh, but who may be scared or apprehensive to have that conversation with an owner? Well, I think I, I think Jackie, you just hit on it, right? Is is don't be scared or apprehensive to have that conversation. It, it's your career you're talking about, and you have to enjoy what you're doing. And if you're not enjoying what you're doing, you can only fake it for so long before it starts impacting those around you. So the best thing you can do for yourself is one, advocate for yourself because you nobody's going to advocate for you better than you are. Okay, so that's the first one. And the second one is, you know, don't assume that there is not another opportunity. Um, granted, there, there may not be, right? You may, need, you may need to move on. That may be a decision you have to make. But I would always give the, whether it's your, your manager or the owner, whoever you normally go to, give them the opportunity, sit down with them, share with them what you're thinking. And maybe there is a different place for you within the company. If you enjoy the company you're with, if it's a company you don't like, then absolutely, you're, you're going to be making a different decision. But if you enjoy the company, maybe there's a different place for you. It kind of goes back uh, to the Jim Collins book, Good to Great, right? He talks about, you know, look at the company as a bus. You get the right people on the bus, you get the wrong people off the bus. And then once you've got all the right people on the bus, now you start finding the right seat on the bus. And it's kind of the same concept. What worked for me my, the first year of my career wasn't going to work the third year, fifth year, or 10th year. I'm always looking for opportunity. And I'm fortunate enough that I'm with a company that has been progressive, that has been growing, that has given tremendous opportunity on leadership development to help get me to where I am today. And I love where I am. I, I, I'm, I'm passionate about where I am. I just, I, I love this organization. I love the trade and I feel very fortunate because of that. Yeah, I can certainly tell that. The next thing I wanted to ask you about is you're the first non-family member to have uh, such a high role in Isaac. So I want to know what that's been like, because I know there's a lot of different conversation about a uh, succession of businesses, different generations coming in. So I would love to know a little bit about, it sounds like Ray Isaac really does treat you as a, uh, as a, you know, co-partner in elevating the Isaac brand. So I would love to know what it kind of felt like to come in as an outsider. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a great question. I coming into Isaac, I didn't know, you know, I really didn't know what to expect. I, I knew my father worked there and actually my younger brother worked there at the same time. Right. So I know I had two family members that were there. It wasn't until I got here 
that I really started to understand what this company was all about and the culture that they were creating. Jim and Bill Isaac were the owners when I came here. And since then, the business has been purchased by uh, Jim's four sons with Ray as a president and his three brothers working here. So I've kind of watched the company grow the last 31 years. But being a leader, uh, a senior leader within a company where I'm not a family member, technically, there are three Isaacs that own this company that report up through me, right? I mean, it's like, okay, that's, it, it takes a little getting used to, but it's the way that it, technically the way that it works. When we have, when we have our Christmas party every year, which we're probably not going to have this year, I always get a kick out of it because we have the, we have about 400 people at the brunch and all the managers are handing out bonuses to their employees. I'm handing out bonuses to the owners. It's always, it's a very odd feeling, <laughs> but they, but the one thing, you know, Ray Isaac and Jim Isaac used to say, you know, say this is that the name of Isaac is not a right. It's a responsibility. And that is the way that they've always treated it. Just because you are a family member doesn't mean you are the leader of somebody or a manager or whatever. You may be, you may not be, but they treat this as a more, it's an equity business, not a lifestyle business. This is an equity business. It has to produce returns to the owners. And there's a certain way that gets done. And I give the Isaacs a tremendous amount of credit because they allow the leaders, the managers within the organization to make the decisions that they are in their positions to make and to let them do what they need to do. And that they let they let us run the ship. I mean, they they really do. And so I, I do give them a lot of credit for that. Yeah, I've certainly heard some fantastic stories and some horror stories on both sides. <laughs> yes. Family ownership side. So I'm really happy to hear that the Isaacs really embrace that. I love what you said there which is the name is a responsibility, not a right. And I would love for my fellow family-owned businesses to remember that as well, who are listening. Because yeah, it is important. It's incredibly important. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about, you've been with the company for over 31 years. Again, that is what a feat and what a testament to the type of culture and support you've gotten in the organization, truly. So let's talk about business growth. Um, what were some of the most significant milestones that you helped the Isaac team achieve and some of the biggest challenges you had to overcome? Okay, sure. Well, I would say if, if I look at milestones, I would say what, when, I was, when I was moved to a management position as the um, assistant or co-service manager, there was a handful of people promoted at that time. And that was because the company, they worked with a consultant and they wanted to get over that that wall, which at the time was probably probably somewhere between an eight and ten million dollar wall, right? That's where they were. It's kind of where they were sitting, but couldn't get any further. So the consultant came in, and that is where those positions came into play. And that really was a milestone for our growth. So that I would say that would be one of the first ones. Then um, I would say when we started getting into uh, well, we did appliance service for a while. Uh, we don't do it any longer. But for a number of years, we did appliance service, and that just gave us another opportunity uh, to get into homes and to learn how to start up a new business unit without any experience and the steps that it would take to get that going. And we actually did pretty well with it. It was our own decision to pull back. So that helped us as we started adding services later on, such as the home performance, the plumbing, the electrical. We, we kind of had that experience to fall back on. Other significant events, I would say, are... When we started the home performance, um, when we decided to start home performance, which I believe was 2000, 
10, 2011, somewhere around there. We knew we needed to. We weren't sure how we would do it. So we actually took uh, uh, Dominic DeLeo, who's uh, now our uh, vice president of residential. At the time, he was an installer and our supervisor. And we moved him into that role. And he basically had to get our home performance division started. And he's done that. And since that time, going from just one person, we now have approximately 20 auditors. And we have, I'm going to say roughly 14, 14, 15 people that do home performance every day, all day. That's all they do. And, uh, and then a couple office support staff. So now you're talking, you got roughly close to 40 people that are doing home performance that we didn't even do 10 years ago. So that was a significant milestone. Also, our commercial department, our commercial installation department, uh, we added some new leadership to that group, and that really started to take off. Fortunately, we had an economy in Rochester that was finally starting to show some movement after 25 years of not a lot going on. And we put some leaders in place. They really took advantage of that. And that group has grown tremendously. And we have since added the commercial plumbing. So adding those really were, um, I, I would say, key events for us. And then the other ones along the way would be when we added additional locations. Because we're when I started here, it was just Rochester. And within a couple of years of when I started, we had our first branch location. And let's say that was 92, 93. So from 93 to 2007, we only had one branch. 2007, we added a branch. 2010, we added another branch down in Corning, Elmira. 2017, we added Buffalo. And, and then our, our sixth branch was we took one of our branches and actually split it um, because it was covering a large area. So we took it, we split it. And within two years, each of them was doing what the one was doing by itself. So that continued to grow. So those each one of those were significant milestones. And then I would say the last one would be in the past year and a half or past year, when we've promoted five of our managers to the role of vice president uh, to really help with the leadership of the organization. Back in 2019, we had uh, two uh, vice presidents. There were three vice presidents. Two of them retired, one after 39 years, one after 36 years. And when they retired, I was the only vice president. So Ray and I were talking about it. And now we've promoted five. They were managers into vice president roles. And they are tremendous leaders and they're really helping to grow the organization. It's So it just continues. Something new is coming up every year that if we're aware of it, we take advantage of it and we've got a leader or a champion to keep it moving forward. It's amazing what we can accomplish. That's incredible. And I, I really want to highlight that because it seems like you guys do a really fantastic job of assigning project leaders to yep. a new initiative. So before you decide to implement a new thing, whether that be adding a new branch, adding a new service, a new division like home performance, you assign you are in charge. You assign a, a trusted employee who you think has the potential to say you are in charge of this, and it seems like it's paid off for you time and time again. That that to me, I, I really I think is that has been one of the keys is having that champion or that leader. Um, to carry any of the initiatives forward. Matter of fact, just yesterday, with COVID, everything on the uprise, um, and in New York and Rochester, it's actually going up at a faster rate. There was a lot of emails going around Friday, some over the weekend, some Monday, different people doing different things. So one of the first things we said, okay, 
we need a champion for this. So now our vice president of HR, uh, Betsy, she took on that role. So now anything related to COVID, she's included in that conversation so that she can, one, be the clearinghouse, but two, have the pulse of what's going on throughout the organization when it comes to COVID so that decisions that are being made are not being made in a vacuum. Whatever we do in Rochester, we'll do in Buffalo, we'll do in Syracuse, everyone's on the same page. So very quickly, we transition that to a leader. And now she will be that leader until this thing is over, right? You know, sometime next year. Talk to me about now that you have over 400 folks, you have over 400 employees, how do you make sure that everyone's on the same page and is aware of quick moving initiatives or changes like what happened with COVID-19? Uh, it's, <laughs> it actually comes back to one of the things we talk about here all the time, uh, communication, right? The communication is key. And during the whole COVID uh, crisis, when it started for us, when it really started to hit us was the middle of March and Ray Isaac was doing a weekly email to the entire team of updates. Here's what we're doing. Here's what's going on. Here's what you should expect. And he did that for about four months. Every week, an email went out. And then it started going to every couple of weeks and then once a month. Well, now we're actually picking those back up again because things are starting to change, right? There's a lot going on. And that means that our team members have a lot of different questions, right? You don't always hear the questions, but you know people are thinking different things. So we try to keep that communication in front of them so that they know what's going on. We don't want there to be any surprises. We want to make sure they're well-informed. And when we do that, we're able to be consistent in how we respond and what we're saying. And everyone want to understand, well, yeah, we're doing it this way because I know Rochester, Buffalo, and Syracuse are, so why wouldn't we? You know, so that really is the big one is the communication piece. And we also do, a, like everybody, right, a lot of Zoom meetings. Right. So we're having a lot more Zoom meetings, um, but we're able to do it with all of our field staff because we've got everybody set up so that they can do Zoom meetings as well. And we also communicate through our uh, our, our uh, company meeting twice a year. We do a company wide meeting. Uh, we normally do it live. We bring everybody in, but obviously we couldn't. So this time around, which was about a month ago, Ray Isaac actually worked with a production company and they did a presentation, a very well done about it, a 90 minute presentation. And we had presentation meetings throughout the company, but uh, some offices had people, some people did it from home, but same day, same time, we all watched the same meeting. So again, same message was delivered with consistency. Good, that's awesome, way to go. Um, I wanna get back to the milestones in a second, but I wanna learn a little bit more about how you solicit questions from all of your employees. Because again, like 400 people, all in different locations. Do, do you have a specific process for which you ask field technicians and CSRs and dispatchers, like what concerns, if any, do you have? How can we address them? Yeah, that's, that is a lot of that is left up to the individual departments and the managers when they have their meetings. So um, every group in the company is meeting at least once a month. Uh, some meet twice a month. It just depends which group it is. So they're always asking questions there. Um, our leaders have uh, really worked very uh, diligently on when someone asks a question, the best answer is another question. Right. So continue to ask questions so you get deeper and you get more feedback from people. So that is where a lot of it comes from. But we also have um, we also do an annual employee survey. Uh, we've done it for the last, gosh, I want to say eight, 10 years. I'm not even sure how long it's been. And the survey is roughly about 60 questions. 
Um, but we talk about it throughout the year. So when it comes up, people do participate. And when they give us feedback during that survey, which is we probably end up with 50 pages of feedback, we get to hear what the employees are thinking. And it's it's a um, anonymous survey. So we don't know who it's coming from unless you want to put your name on it. So people are open to give feedback. And that's what they do. And we've done very well with that. When you consider 400 employees, we've had as high as I think the highest has been 92% participation rate. So when you, when you get 92% out of, you know, 400 people, that's uh, that's a pretty good sampling of what's going on with your staff. And the reason we get so much feedback is that whatever comes back from the survey, we then take, first thing we look at is we don't care what we did well at. We want to know where we're not doing well. And we create task teams and we go and we start approaching those things. We start talking to each one of the groups within the company. People know we're being actionable on it. And some things we can change, some things we cannot, but we're, we're, we're upfront with them. We, we can't do this and here's why. This we can do and here's what we're going to do. And then we put it into action. So we respond to the items that are brought up in the survey. We don't just hear the survey and say, oh, okay, we do something with it. And you're super transparent about the steps that you take. Yes. And you can't do anything. You're super transparent about it. I love that. That's fantastic. I think some of the companies that have done the most amiss uh, amongst well, during this insane 2020 are the ones that have kept transparent with their employees. So uh, way to go on that for sure. You have, you have to because people people are wondering if people, right, what do you do? If you don't know the answer, you start making up your own answer, right? And the answer you're making up in your head could be the wrong answer. You know, and it's kind of the same as like when there when there's an accident or there's a crime committed, the police try to get there within a couple hours to talk to witnesses because the longer it goes on, the more the story of what they saw changes in their own mind. So you, you, you've got to be transparent and you've got to listen to people. I love that. Um, so going back to the milestones you hit, one of the things you met, you mentioned was, you know, Isaac at some point was kind of stuck at that eight to $10 million range. And I see that quite a bit. Uh, we have quite a couple of cust- uh, customers at, within the service time community who are in that range and want to break through. What are some, what are the ways that you, that you and your team approached breaking through that? You mentioned working with a consultant. Are there any specific tips that you could share from that time period? No, I mean, I think it would, you know, one would be getting getting somebody else to work with, right? Bringing somebody in, somebody else in that has a different experience, a different expertise, because when you're inside your own bubble, right? If you're working with people inside that same bubble, you could be a great team, but you still have limitations based on your view. So when you bring in somebody from the outside, it might shake things up, but in a very good way. So bringing in that consultant, finding the right consultant, making sure you talk to people about who that consultant might be. That's one thing that you could do. Other things you could do is uh, ACCA. Uh, They have their mix groups, uh, MIX, which stands for Member Information Exchange. Um, It's a peer group. And Isaac has belonged to a mix group for, gosh, probably 25 years. We went, we joined a different group way back when, when we were making this transition. And that got us with a group of folks that were actually larger companies and just had a more dynamic way of thinking. So that mixed group, that has helped us to, I guess, move up in our volume and increase in size and do what we're doing today. And I would say the other part of it too was also the development of your leaders. Isaac has been a tremendous supporter of developing our leaders. Their, Ray Isaac has belonged to a Vistage group, which is an international organization for leadership. He's belonged to Vistage for, I think, 13 years. 
I joined a group uh, 10 years ago. October was my 10-year anniversary with my group. We have another vice president who's in a group of his own. And every month we're meeting and we're working on our leadership and leadership development. So we do that. Our leaders, anyone that's been a supervisor, manager, vice president, has gone through either the conscious leadership at the local community college, or we have a nine-month program we do through uh, Ken Blanchard on leadership development. It's called Lead at All Levels. And we've run, well, gosh, at this point, I think we've run 60 people through that. So we really spend a lot of time focusing on the growth of our leaders because they, in turn, will go and develop the people that they're responsible to. And that creates our, our, next, uh, our next batch um, of future leaders for the organization. And to this point, it's worked out extremely well because not only do we have well-developed leaders before they get in a leadership position, but we're also showing a career progression opportunity for people that if I'm a technician today or I'm an installer or an auditor, there's some additional paths for me to take at Isaac, which allows me to turn what would have been a five-year working relationship into a 30-year career. So there's a lot of lot of reasons behind the, the growth and development of your leaders. I love that. What does leadership mean to you? Leadership to me, it means, it means, it do, doesn't mean having all the answers, right? I, I can tell you what it doesn't mean, right? It doesn't mean having all the answers. It doesn't mean, you know, being the part every day. It means that you, if you're a good, if you truly are a leader, is that you see the people around you, you see what they can bring to the table, you help to enhance their positive traits, and you help them to develop the underdeveloped traits that they have so that they can become better leaders. You surround yourself with great leaders. That's that's what leadership is really all about and looking for those opportunities. Yeah, I love that. Um, I want to get into ACA next, but before I do, what are some tips that you would love to give to our listeners about opening a new branch and adding a new service? Well, let's see. Uh, well, do your homework, right? Know if you're going to open a new location, really know the market you're going to uh, and understand the dynamics of that market depending how far away it is from where you are to understand just even terminology. So like we, we opened up a branch, it's in the Corning Elmira area and we, it's in a small town called Big Flats. So we called it our Big Flats location. Well, down there, they call that area the Twin Tiers. So now we call it our Twin Tiers location. That's what they refer to it. The Southern Tier of New York, Northern Tier of Pennsylvania, people that live there call it Twin Tiers. So, well, if you're going to fit in, you need to call it Twin Tiers. Right. So so know the terminology that you use. If you're you could either buy a company or you could do it organically. Our success, we have found the most success when we have purchased an existing company that already has a customer base and has a revenue stream. And then we just developed that further and added processes, procedures, uh, professionalism to help it grow even further. So those are probably a few of the things you want to be aware of as you're doing it. And then sometimes if you buy a company, you know, depending on how you work out the purchasing agreement, um, there's a lot of different ways you can get uh, creative with that. You know, so, and that's where consultants may come in, or if you belong to a mixed group, mixed group may come in, or some of the other organizations out there can also offer assistance such as ACA and things like that. Got it. And how about opening, uh, how about going into a new service? Uh, Kind of the same thing. You want to have a champion. Right, talked about that earlier. If you're going to start a new service, you want to have a champion who needs to learn it from the ground up. So having that one person that becomes a point person, so that when they walk in the doors every day, that's the first thing on their mind. It's not 
a manager from this area who's also going to do this because it becomes secondary to them. So having that champion is a really important piece of it. Like right now, we do commercial plumbing, but we don't do commercial fire protection, but we want to. So we're actually going to bring in a junior engineer to work with our engineer. This junior engineer is going to come in and his response or hers responsibility is going to be to learn all the codes and everything related to fire protection. They are going to be then become the champion for our fire protection group. All right. So where that's that's the way that we're going to approach it. I love that. Those are great tips. Thank you. So let's talk about ACA. It already is fantastic because of the networking opportunities. Yes. Um, but specifically, I really would love to talk about the visit you made to ACA, uh, you made to with ACA to Capitol Hill to talk about improving work environment for air conditioning con- contractors. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the biggest challenges facing ACA members today? Well, when it comes to, you know, when it comes to getting people into the trades, right? I mean, that people, people, is the number one issue across the board. It doesn't matter if what skilled trade it is, people's the biggest issue. So when we're on Capitol Hill, some of the things we talked to some of the uh, Congress people or their staff about was how do you uh, develop programs in your states to allow people to come into the trades? How do you develop a system where the, the schooling system within that state can help promote the trades? Because one of the things I learned was I believe it was Missouri. I, I, I might be. I think I think it was Missouri. Um, in the state of Missouri, the graduation rate of students that go on to college impacts the accreditation of that school district. And trade schools do not count as college. So, what's a school district or counselor is going to do is they're going to want to move people into two-year and four-year uh, degree programs as opposed to a trade school. So things like that need to be changed, and that has to that has to happen at the state level. So talking to the congressmen, that may, that things like that have an impact. Ways to develop relationships uh, with the military, right? How to get how to get folks that are coming out of the military, as we talked about veterans earlier. How to get them involved uh, early on, so that when they transition out, that there are career opportunities for them. Dave Kyle, who uh, he's the uh, president of Trade Masters. Down in uh, down in D.C., he's done a tremendous job of working with the veterans and bringing veterans into his his business. Now he's in D.C., so he's surrounded by a lot of military. But he realized that, and he's helped create that pathway. And Dave actually happens to be a past chairman um, of ACCA as well. But he's always been extremely passionate about veterans. So getting the chance to go to Capitol Hill and talk to folks about things like this really does have an impact on the industry. They're just those small incremental pushes on the flywheel, right? There are no, no one of them is going to do it by itself. But if you keep that message continuing, then eventually you do make progress. I had no idea that in that in certain states, schools get money based on how many students go to two or four year universities. Yeah, and, it was, and it, was, it wasn't money. It was the accredited. So I, like in Missouri, and again, I, I'm pretty sure it was Missouri. The schools have to be accredited in order to get those accreditation points to renew their accreditation. That's what it's based upon. Wow. Yeah. That's bananas. Yeah. How do you, when you come across young adults today or folks who may be interested in a career transition, how do you sell the trades? Oh, I think the, I think the trades are easy to sell to the right person. All right. So first conversation we have with someone after 
we make sure that they're just culturally, this is going to be a good fit for them, right? Because, you know, we focus on Isaac. I mean, that's what we talk about is then showing them the opportunities that are available um, within the trades or a company such as Isaac. You know, you can come in as a, maybe uh, a level one mechanic, meaning you're going to be helping a mechanic do installations. That's where you start. But where you go from there, there really is no limit. And being able to express it to people and let them see a clear path of what they could do, I think is a very, it's a very tangible asset, right? To be able to show them this is what you could do. And with Isaac, we, we do have, you know, with our iTech, our training program, Isaac University, we can actually help develop people technically, which to us, the technical part, that's the easy part. We can teach you that. What we can't teach you are those inherent skills that somebody may have, their ability to communicate, their ability to listen, their ability, you know, being on time and all those little things that you take for granted. Some of those things can't be taught. The technical we can teach. So when we bring somebody in or somebody approaches us about a career opportunity, we can not only lay out a possible career path for them, but we can give them everything they need to develop that skill set, whether technically or soft skills. We can help them do that so that they can make that progression. And we've got, you know, we got a few folks here that are in senior positions that started out in the field. I mean, I, I started here, right? I started uh, you know, right out of the Marine Corps installing furnaces in new homes. $5 an hour. I remember it very well, right? I'd work a, I'd work a 40 hour week and I'd gross, a, what was that? Yeah, $200, right? Worked 40 hours, I'd gross 200. So <laughs> things have changed since then. I'm up to 300 now. But, uh, <laughs> but being able to show that to somebody, I think letting them see and understand what it means, I think is a big part of it. But also though, because of the shortage of people, it's also forced us as an organization to look at how we do things and what we did five years ago or 10 years ago, that may not work today. So we have gotten much more flexible with our scheduling. We have, we have, we have created different shifts for people to work. We've allowed people to make transitions from one group to another relatively easily if that's what they want to do and they're the right fit. We're happy to do that. And for people that are working internally, because of COVID, we had to have people working remotely. Well, like a lot of companies, we have more and more people that are able to work remotely. Unfortunately, our, our service and installation teams have to go to customers' home. They, they can't do it from home. But our support staff works remotely. We've, we've got a contact center that normally there would be 15 people in there right now taking inbound phone calls. Right now, the only person in there is the manager. Everybody else is working from home. And our numbers are our numbers continue to go up as far as the service level and satisfaction level from customers. So we're learning something about ourselves, but we had to be open to that, right? Because we could have said, no, 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 nobody's going to work from home. Well, no, this is what we need to do to protect them from COVID. But we found out it's a great opportunity for us. Yeah, 100%. And actually, I had a recent conversation with someone about how the recruiting strategies that were 10 years ago don't work now. And from your answer, it seems like Flexible shifts, being able to working, being able to work remotely, especially now in the coronavirus pandemic, you really it sounds like you have to keep your ear to the ground and hear what are employees looking for, what are young adults looking for as they embark and look for a company to work for. Absolutely, and we've found that we're not a fit for everybody, right? I mean, we're just not, and that's okay. We don't want someone to feel that they have to be here just because they they have to get a paycheck. That's not what this is about. You should enjoy what you do, 
if you're not enjoying it, do something else. We we encourage you to. But yeah, being 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 flexible, listening, and knowing that again, what we did five years ago worked great, but it's not necessarily the case today. And I'll, I'll catch myself sometimes. We'll be in a meeting talking about something. And I'll say, well, we don't do that because, and then I'll think, okay, well, Eric, that was 15 years ago. We can probably do something a little different today. So (laughs) it's having that awareness though, and and the openness and the vulnerability, right? Allowing yourself to be vulnerable and be open to suggestions and taking the best suggestions and helping to bring them together and helping them to happen. That's what a leader does. Yeah, 100% agree. Um, we're almost at the top of the hour. I still have quite a few questions I'd like to go through. Do you still sure. have uh, You still have some time? Oh, we're, we're good. We're good. So because of your involvement with the ACCA and other trade organizations, I'm sure you've spoken with companies of all sizes. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some things that owners should focus on if their goal is to be as successful as Isaac? Oh, okay. Well, if they want to be successful, um, and I think Isaac has been very successful, one of them is the culture. Right, you really have to look at the culture of your organization. Now, a good culture doesn't mean that everybody gets what they want. That's not what a good culture is. A good culture is where you are consistent in what you do, that you hold people accountable for what you expect them to do, and that you have clearly laid out the expectations of your team. So when people know what to expect, they know they're gonna be held accountable. There, there's no surprises. And that's really what usually throws people off is when there's surprises, last minute surprises, last minute changes, comes down to communication, right? So you take those things and tie them together, that is going to help you to uh, really create an organization that can, that can move to the next level. Um, another part of it is knowing, in this case, let's say you're an owner operator and you've got 15, 20 people and you're trying to move that next level you've got to understand as the owner, what are your what are your limitations, right? Because you know what you can do, you know what you can bring, but what are your limitations? And for that, there, there's a really good book out there, um, the E-Myth, uh, which, right, E-Myth talks about that, right? What are, the, what are the three different areas? You're either an entrepreneur, you're a manager, or you're technical, right? It's one of the three, but usually you can't be all three. So if you're two of the three or one of the three, then you want to bring people in that can fill in the empty spaces. And that's going to help you to grow. That, to me, is an important piece of it, knowing your own limitations. And then uh, the people you bring on board, right? Don't hire someone just because you need somebody. When you do that, you end up hiring the wrong people. Have a process in place so that not just maybe one person, but maybe two people are interviewing uh, at different times. And maybe one of them should interview based on the position and the other one should interview based on the cultural fit to the company. Because the manager, that's the way we do it here, the hiring manager does, recruiting department does the first interview, the hiring manager does the second interview, and then one of our VPs will do a third interview on the cultural fit. So if you've got a manager that needs to fill a position, they may not see everything clearly when they got an okay candidate and say, yeah, that's the one I want. But then one of the VP the VPs does that final cultural fit interview and finds out, no, it's not the right person for this organization. And we don't make a bad hiring decision. So I think some things like that would really help you to uh, move on to that next level. 
Interesting. So in that case, you know, you, when you're trying to fill a position, you have several levels that verify the technical abilities or those soft skills that you said are sometimes harder to teach, like listening ability, ability to communicate. And then you have some executive levels or not necessarily executive, but a third panel that evaluates for culture fit. Exactly. Yep. And we found that to work out very well for us. And and, and we've gotten, the, the managers have gotten really good at it because usually when someone's coming up to a member of the executive leadership team, they're usually, I'd say 98 times out of 100, they're going to be a good candidate because they know that if they're not, they're not going to move them up. So it kind of holds them accountable. And it's a good learning experience for them as well. Do you apply the same strategy when enrolling folks in iTech? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yep. We have our like an iTech, we have our we have our boot camp program. So our boot camp program is a 12-week paid training program for HVAC. So we've got a boot camp going right now. Boot camp, I think it's number 18. We started our first one July of 2015. So I think boot camp 18 is going on right now. And it's a 12-week paid training program, 40 hours a week. We pay all the wages, we cover all the training, the whole nine yards. And at the end of it, if you complete it successfully, you're guaranteed a position with the company. And right now we have over 100 employees that have come through the bootcamp program. So we couldn't have grown without that program. That's incredible. So talk to me about building this program. I mean, you already kind of gave the specs of what the campus looks like. You have a fully, you have like a fully functioning house, it sounds like, in a warehouse. How did you and your team approach the building of this huge investment and making sure that it was implemented in such a way that it would yield success? Well, it was, uh, it's, it's a very good question. And where that actually came about was it must have been in the spring of 2015, one of our management meetings, we're talking about we didn't have enough people and we're trying to figure out what we could do. And then it was a Sunday. I remember it very well. It was a Sunday. I was in here in the office and I was doing, I was doing some work and I started thinking back to my time in the Marine Corps. And when you go in the Marine Corps as any of the branch of the military, you start out in boot camp. And what does boot camp do? It gives you these basic skills that you need to know. Well, I kind of took that thought. And I just started writing it out on paper. And then I really started writing it out. And I think by Monday, I had a whole written out, uh, more or less business plan that I presented to Ray. Ray thought it was a great idea. We talked about it with the managers and we said, okay, let's do a boot camp program. And that is basically how it started. We decided on what were the, the traits we needed from the people that came on board, how many weeks it would be, how we would pay them, and what skills they needed to learn during this boot camp. And we have refined it every time. It's gotten better and better. But now it's to the point where the, our first boot camp we had, if I remember correctly, I think we had over 200 applicants for the first boot camp. The last boot camp, we probably had closer to 75. So the number has dropped down, which is okay because you know, there's a lot of people that are working right now. Um, but our recruiting department has done a really good job of identifying the skills and the traits that we're looking for that are successful. And the number of people that come to orientation, which is the night where we kind of explain the program, AU, the first one, I think, was 75 people made it to that point. Now we're typically around 35 or 40 people that make it to orientation because we're identifying early on who the most successful candidates would be. And then when we start a boot camp, we'll typically start with around 15 to 18, and we're graduating roughly 68% will graduate from the program. So, and then once they graduate, they've got a full-time position with the company. 
I love that. I would imagine someone who may be in, you know, that eight to 10 million mark that we were talking about before, or someone who may be, you know, have five technicians and is like, no way can I implement something like that. Can you, do you feel like the strategy you implemented at Isaac can also be applied at these smaller levels? And if so, what would be some suggestions you would make? Absolutely. It could be there's that right. That becomes your own perceived constraints. When you say, I can't do this or I can't do that. Yes, you would have to modify it. And yes, you would have to do some things differently, but you start with something. And I've talked to a number of people who've talked about like, how do I start a training program for my, you know, for, for people, because we don't have a training program. And one of the first things I ask them is, okay, when you do maintenance on an air conditioner, how does a technician who's out there know what they have to do? And they say, well, they got a checklist of the things that they do. I said, okay. So let's say you got 20 items on your checklist. Take each of those 20 items and break it down into its smallest parts. So you end up with an hour, a half hour, two hours of content just from that. If you do that for 20 checklist items, next thing you know, you have a 25-hour class. There is your first step to your training program. You do it on that. And then you just continue to build from there. And you can do it if you've got one person uh, that you need to train or if you've got 20 people that you need to train. It just depends on the commitment that you make to it. And I think it's important to understand, yeah, you're going to spend money to train that person, but how much revenue will they bring in over the next one, three, five, 10 years because you took the time to train them in the beginning, train them the right way. So it's just a matter of getting past that and say, okay, we'll start small, we'll do the best we can, and we'll go from there. And maybe you include the local trade school or community college, you might have some programs, try to get dynamic with it, but, but don't say you can't. Say, I can, and this is how I will do it. And what you're doing five years from now will be a lot different than what you're doing today. 100%. I think that's great, great, great advice. Uh, I know that every culture is going to have its different fit, and there are obviously specific traits that Isaac looks for. But as you whittle down your, you know, your enrollment class, I should say, as you as you identify your candidates that get to go through the boot camp, what are some, what are the top three traits that you look for in new recruits? Okay. Well, I would say the one of the first ones is really going to be because they're going to be representing us at somebody's home or business. That, that first impression. Right, that first impression really does say a lot about somebody, and it, it doesn't mean it, you, we've got people with tattoos and and piercings and you know longer hair, shorter hair. That's okay, but how do you present? Because you can have you can have longer hair, and you wear it a certain way. Whereas you can have longer hair and wear it a way that might be more uh, better representation of the company. Right, so it really depends on how you know that initial look. Another one would be just your your style of communication. When you're talking, when they're talking to you, are they talking to you? Are they able to look you in the eye? Are they able to focus on the conversation? Or are their eyes all over the place and they're just not able to pay attention to you? Well, how would you expect them to ever be able to communicate with a homeowner if they can't communicate with you? So we look at that one very closely. And then another thing that happens when we have this boot camp program, we have our orientation. And Ray Isaac, he's done the same thing in all 18 boot camps is we have the rows of chairs and tables and people will come in and fill in and it's always the same. There might be six or eight seats in the front and there's only two people sitting in those seats and Ray will learn what their names are and he'll talk to them and then he'll get up there before the or- at the beginning of orientation. He'll say, okay, he goes, uh, John and uh, Sharon, stand up. Boom, two people in the front stand up and you'll say, why do I know their names? And eventually someone will say, because they're in the front row and he says, yep, that's exactly it. 
And then he just stands there and he waits for a minute. And eventually the light clicks on somebody's head in the back row. I'm like, oh, there's four empty seats in the front. They get up and move. And as soon as that first person moves, everybody's over top of the other one trying to get that front row. So whoever, whoever takes that initiative to want to be up front, really be engaged and understand, that to us is actually an important factor because that means they really want to be there as opposed to the person who's sitting in the very last row, their head down, their arms crossed, and not really paying attention to anyone. They might have been their mother told them they should go, right? Or their father said they should be there. So things like that. And again, it all comes down to a lot of those, their non-technical skills, right? They're the technical we can teach. Technical we can teach indeed. I did want to make sure that we talked a little bit about fleet management because you specifically yeah. called that out in your LinkedIn profile. So talk to me a little bit about how you approach fleet management and what folks who are growing their business should consider as they manage a fleet of trucks. Okay. Well, our, our fleet, like I said, we're, we're about 270 vehicles. So it definitely has grown. Uh, we're, we're probably buying 30, 35 vehicles a year. So it's a, it's a pretty robust uh, undertaking. But when, when you have the fleet, when you're, as your fleet starts to grow, um, doing maintenance on the vehicles, that's an important one. The maintenance, you've got to be doing the maintenance and then safety inspections. Uh, we require our technicians to do a walk around whenever they start a shift. And they also have to turn in a weekly uh, safety inspection where they fill out the information on, you know, tires and lights and everything's working properly. So making sure that you're doing, you know, following the safety elements. Another aspect of it is driver training. Okay, some type of driver training, whether it's your AAA or some of the other programs are out there. Our training director, uh, Charles Sandusky, he's actually a trained trainer on the Smith system, which is a system used for driver safety training. So he goes through and anyone before they go into a vehicle, get assigned a vehicle, he meets with them. They go to the conference room, they go through a whole bunch of things, and then they do at least a one hour ride along on a specific path. And he basically grades them, just like when you get your driver, your, your road test to get your driver's license. So making sure that you've done things to be sure that your drivers are being safe um, is, I can't stress that enough because there's a lot of people that they've only just started driving. They've only ever driven a car or an SUV. They've never driven a work van. They accelerate differently. They brake differently. They handle differently. They need to understand that. And also along with that is you want to understand your fleet costs for repairs. You want to know what are repairs costing you and what is the life cycle of a vehicle. Uh, so for a number of years ago, I went through and I calculated, got all of our receipts out of the computer, and I found out what it was costing us to keep a vehicle running for five years, six years, seven years, eight years, You know, and would determine where we would stop doing major repairs and at what mileage we would not go any further with repairs. So we've got some things that we kind of use to our advantage which has allowed us to actually bring down the amount as a percentage of sales that we spend on fleet maintenance. We've actually gotten better at it, more efficient. So that's important. Understand your numbers, not just, yeah, let's send it over and get it fixed. Um, and then the last one, going back to safety again, is we have, uh, there's a device called by Truce, which goes in the vehicle. And the Truce device, what that does is it does not allow a technician or whoever's driving to receive phone calls texts or um, app updates while they're driving. Uh, so it, it eliminates distracted driving. You can whitelist phone numbers and that. So if the office needs a call, the office can call them, but they have to be on hands-free, right? It won't allow them to answer a call unless they're on hands-free. So having a safety device like that, we do have GPS in our vehicles because we want to know where our assets are 
And we also get the reporting on it about, you know, somebody speeding or something like that. We want to be aware of it. We're not yelling at people when they speed. We're saying, hey, we're making them aware. And we just ask them to change their behaviors and we give them time to do that. And it's just one of the tools that we use. The one thing we don't have that you may want to consider is the dash cams. Um, There's some really cool technology out there and you may want to look into that. And some of the newest technology has the AIBM technology built into it, which AI is artificial intelligence, BM is behavior management. And when you get one of the systems that has the AI and the BM, it will actually be able to, it watches in the cab as well as the where the vehicle's heading. And it will identify when you don't have your seatbelt on. It will identify when you're picking up your cell phone or talking on your cell phone. And it will remind the driver to not do those things. So there's some really cool technology out there. We just haven't, uh, we haven't gone that extent yet because of the size of the fleet and the expenditure. We're still debating that one. So, but as a fleet manager, you just want to be sure that you're really keeping a close eye on your fleet and uh, that people are driving safely. Yeah, and they're your assets, which is exactly what you said. Exactly what they are. So I have one final question and followed by a couple of rapid fire questions that sure. we're going to hang out. But um, I would love to know, you know, as someone who's been in the trades for 31 years, if there was one thing you could say to all of your customers and homeowners in the upstate New York area, what would it be? Hmm. That's a good question. I would say, going back to the energy audits that we do, is I would say, have someone come into your home and do an energy audit. Because 60% of what we spend on utilities at a home, gas, electric, 60% goes towards heating and air conditioning. So that's the biggest expenditure that you have. So if 60% is going there, you would think you'd want to know where you could save and where you're wasting. So by having an energy audit done and having us go through and do all those tests, it tells you, it basically gives you a picture of your home and it shows you where you can save that money. And to me, I think that is a great way to go. And many, many times somebody calls us and they say, well, I want a new furnace and air conditioner, more efficient. Well, we go there and we present that to them, but we also do the energy audit and come to find out their biggest savings would be doing more insulation rather than replacing the furnace and air conditioner. We make more money on a furnace and air conditioner but it's not the best thing for the homeowner. So they might choose to do the insulation this year, maybe the furnace air in a couple of years, but you can understand the home and the home is a science, the home, you know, there's so much you learn from that. So having energy audits done, I think is a really useful tool for the contractor and the homeowner. Yeah, hundred percent agree. Homes are very complex. I don't have one yet, but I've heard, I've heard. They absolutely can be. Uh, before we get to these rapid fire questions, which are just, I'll send them to you and you just go with your gut. Is there anything we should have talked about that we didn't? No, I think, I think you've done a great job of the questions that you presented me with. And um, I, I, I feel good with what we talked about. It's, it's just, it's a great industry. It's a great trade. And I, I think it's a tremendous opportunity for anyone that wants to get into it. I, I really- agree. And thank you. You're welcome. Um, so first off, you mentioned the E-Myth, which we've mentioned many times in this podcast before. You also mentioned Jim Collins' Good to Great, which has also been mentioned. Um, what other books or podcasts do you think that the, our listeners who are theoretically interested in growing and scaling their own businesses, which, what kind of resources should they also look out for? Wow, that's, that's a great question. I mean, there are a lot of different books that you could read. I mean, there, there's the Michael Gerber books, there's Ken Blanchard. There's Simon Sinek. I mean, there's so many out there. 
that you could use to develop your business. And I would say start somewhere. And if you go to like, uh, if you go to like uh, some of the um, uh, like Audible, or if you get like to read paper books, like I do, I'm still, I still like to have a book in my hand. Um, when you get a book that also will show your recommendations of similar books. So doing that, I think is a really effective tool for myself. Um, I've read business books for many years. As a matter of fact, I'm looking at a bookshelf. I've got, it has probably 60 books on it. Um, and I've read those and most of those are business related. What has been different for me? And, and I, I really, I see this as something that's really made a difference for me the last couple of years is I've started reading things not related to business. I've started reading things related to whether it's personal development, uh, professional development, thinkers, uh, different things. I've opened my mind up. And when I open my mind up, I'm able to see different perspectives. Um, so uh, I just got, last book I read, I just got done reading a couple of weeks ago, was uh, was called White Fragility. That was the name of the book. And it has to do, yep, the white, white Fragility. And that book opened up my mind to the way other people see things. And it gave me different perspectives that I didn't have before. That to me was a very helpful book. So finding books that are outside of what you normally read I always find it very, very helpful. Um, the other one is podcasts. Uh, my, fa- my favorite podcast, and I listen to everyone that comes out, uh, Brene Brown. I love Brene Brown. She, I'm a Brene Brown fan too. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's why we get along. That's it. And Brene talks about everything, and she always has some wonderful guests. But what it does, again, it gets me to see different perspectives. And something I learned about um, vulnerability right? In a relationship. Well, that then translates over to something in a work relationship or my personal life somewhere that has an impact down the road. So just opening yourself up to things like that. And there's many other podcasts that are out there. Uh, Tim Ferriss. I, I like listening to Tim Ferriss. I got Tim Ferriss's book. Was it? It's, it's uh, Tools of the Trade. And it's the thickest book I've got. I think it's like three inches thick. And it's a whole bunch of little tidbits from successful professionals throughout the world. So I, I think it's just really giving yourself the opportunity to try something different because we're always go with the things we're comfortable with, the things that we know. It's when we allow ourselves to be vulnerable and we allow ourselves to learn different things or hear different ways of thinking on something that we never would have considered before, that we become enlightened, that we become better leaders, and that we're able to grow our organizations. Yeah, I love Tim Ferriss's podcast too. We're two peas in a pod. These questions will be a little bit easier. How do you take your coffee? Uh, cream. Me too. How if you could have dinner with one person, dead or alive, who would it be? Oh boy, one person, dead or alive. I would say, honestly, I'd say George Washington. Hmm. Father of our country. Yeah. What's the number one thing you're trying to learn more about right now? Um, I'm trying to learn more. It's kind of sound of silly. I'm trying to learn more about the things I don't know about. I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm trying, right? I, there's a lot of things that I've known, I've read, but I'm constantly looking for things that I know nothing about and trying to learn a, some, a little something about them. So I won't call the cop-out answer, but that really is the way I'm approaching it right now. I think that's great. So if money weren't an object, so if you had unlimited resources, what's the first thing you would do? Travel. Where would you go? Well, right now on my list, as soon as COVID's over, it's either Portugal or Scandinavia. And then after that, it's uh, Tahiti. Oh, sounds great. Yeah. Uh, What's the number one thing every contractor should do to run a successful business? I would say communicate, communications. 
you, whether it's with your clients, with your, your folks on your team, whoever it might be, the, the more clear, open, transparent communications you can have, the, I think the stronger the relationships you're going to build. I love that. Eric, I can't, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed talking with you today. It was really a pleasure. And I really want to thank you for taking time out of your day to share your life story and your insights with our audience. Truly. Thank you so much. Uh, Jackie, it was my pleasure. I, you know, I enjoyed it. I, I love the questions you had and I really enjoyed the time with you. So thank you. Ever wonder how much your business is worth? So many owners ask that question and have no idea where to turn for an answer. In just a few clicks, Service Titan's new Service Business Valuation Calculator can give you an easy and free estimate of the current value of your business. Whether you're thinking about selling your company or looking to track growth, check it out now. Visit servicetitan.com value. Again, that's servicetitan.com value. See how much your business is worth today. Want to network with fellow service entrepreneurs and former guests of this podcast? Join our private Facebook group, Toolbox for the Trades, to get immediate access to the best tips, tricks, and tactics from fellow service entrepreneurs. Visit facebook.com slash group slash toolbox for the trades, or click the link in our show notes to join. See you online.